0: The subject today is the resurrection supernatural. The resurrection is supernatural. That really is the only way that we can explain it, isn't it? The resurrection, supernatural. And in the book of Acts chapter 26 and verse 1, we see that the setting here is a pagan king whose name is Agrippa. And the apostle Paul is appearing before him making a legal case because Paul is going to appeal his uh, the charges against him, and he'll ultimately go to Rome where he'll be tried, where he will even appear before Caesar, and ultimately years down the road will be executed. But for right now, he stands before this pagan, this very, this very heathenistic king, and he's the king said, Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself now. Make your case. And Paul stretched out his hand, and he answered for himself. And in verse number 8, he is talking about his faith, that his faith is something that the Jewish Bible had, in fact, predicted. And in verse number 8, he asked a question that's my text today. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Why do you think it's such an incredible thing that God would raise the dead? Now, I consulted Mr. Webster for some help on that word incredible because I wanted to make sure I was absolutely right in what I told you. And Mr. Webster said in his book, That incredible means not believable. Incredible means too unusual or or improbable as to be believed. That something is just so far out there that we don't even believe it if it is incredible. So now putting that into this text, Paul says to this pagan king, Agrippa, why should it be thought a thing so unusual or so improbable that God would, in fact, raise the dead, and so improbable that you don't even believe it? And that's my question to you today. Why is it incredible, improbable, and beyond the realm of possibility, that God himself could raise the dead? Twice I've been blessed to be able to go to the Holy Land and to view the tomb, the empty tomb, up on my right here is Gordon's Calvary, about 400 yards. And you move down, not very far away. With him, easy walking distance, just a few moments. There's the tomb. And Norman and I and some folks from the church once were with me. And we actually, the guard would let two or three people walk into the tomb. You can walk into it. It's hewn out of stone, just like the Bible says. Are we absolutely sure that's the tomb? Well, we're not. But if it, if it is not, it was one very much like it in that, and, in, and in that same locale. And I stood there and looked and thought, that's where his body lay. Jesus walked through that same door that I just walked to, through. And there he lay for three days and three nights. And then you come out of the tomb And you're walking over here to this side, just a few feet, just, oh, maybe 20, 30 yards. There's a sign, a plaque there. You can see it. There's a picture of it. Jesus Christ. The, the, The sign is based on Romans 1, 4. Just turn over there in your Bible because it's just three or four pages ahead of where you are now. Just go to the right, three or four pages. And on that sign is the words of Romans 1 and 4. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That what happened up on Calvary and what happened in that tomb and that that tomb is empty declares that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is alive forevermore. And twice I stood and looked at that plaque and I took a picture of it. Quoting Romans one four, Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. But I'd like to go back to the beginning this morning, to begin at the beginning, because the resurrection flows from our belief in who God is. And a little boy, five years old or so, been playing out in the yard. And he came into kitchen, the kitchen where his mother was working. Mom, he said, how did God make his self? That's a pretty profound question for a five-year-old, isn't it? And interestingly, this week, Wednesday night, one of the five-year-old teachers in this church said to me, Pastor, a little boy asked me the other day, did God make Himself? Where did God come from? And I said, just come Sunday morning, you and him, and I'll tell you. So here we are. So the little boy comes in and says, Mom, did God make Himself?" Well, the little boy was misled by false reasoning. And follow me carefully. The little boy, like all of us and every other thing in our life, we believe that something has to come from something else. That if something exists, it didn't come from nothing. And this little boy reasoned that God had to come from something that it had existed prior to him. That's not the case with God. In the book of Psalms, number 90, and verse 2, there's an answer to that little boy's question and the little boy's here in our, su- <clears throat> here in our Sunday school. The psalmist writes, Lord, before you form the earth, even from everlasting or from eternity, thou art God. And the answer is that God is eternal. God never had a beginning. That God is self-existent. That God is absolutely not dependent on anyone or anything else for his existence. God is eternal. But I thought I'd bring a prop today and try to illustrate the importance of this and how it ties in with the resurrection. I have here, borrowed from our science lab over in our Christian school what is called a vacuum bottle and we take this bottle in laboratory experiments and we sanitize it first of all on the inside make sure there are no little bugs or living microbes in there we look at it it's absolutely clean and washed out there's no little bits of matter in there there are there's no energy in there Only some air now. We put the cap on it, and we take this apparatus here, and we pump this thing, and it sucks the air out of that bottle through this little nozzle right here, and then we seal it. And uh, if we had wanted to do this permanently, we would have put some very, very high-quality cement on this, and we would have sealed that. Nothing can get in, and nothing can get out. We sanitized it. We made sure there's no living microbes or beings in it at all. There is no matter in there. There's no energy in there. As Francis Schaeffer said, there's nothing, nothing in there. A zero with the rim knocked off. Nothing. I mean, there's nothing there. Now, let's assume that's seal like that and nobody breaks the seal. I want to ask you a question. Will there ever be anything in this bottle? If somebody doesn't break the seal, we have to vote. This is America. Will there ever be anything in the bottle, assuming the seal is not broken? No, there never will be. It would be impossible, because nothing from nothing, nothing can come. From nothing, nothing can come. So you can seal that bottle up ten thousand years from now, assuming it was perfectly sealed and nobody broke the seal. Then. It would be there, a vacuum bottle. Now, let's compare the whole universe to that bottle. And here's the entire universe, but it's empty. It's void. There's no matter. There's no energy. There's nothing. One great, great void. Nothing, nothing, nothing. You can't picture that because we only can think in pictures and terms of things that we are familiar with. But as best you can, get your mind around. There's nothing in the whole universe, nothing there. Now, I want to ask you, if there is nothing there, no God, no matter, no energy, go back before the beginning. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, back a million years before Genesis 1-1, no matter, no energy, no God, no nothing. Is there ever going to be anything? Is there ever going to be anything? There never would have been anything. You wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been. The universe would not have been. The stars would not have been. The planets would not have been because from nothing, nothing can come so something had to exist from everlasting answer to that little boy's question did god make himself you know it had to be a living being a rational thinking planner if you will i look up at night and i see the stars and the moon i watch that eclipse on the internet that occurred here a day or two ago and just marvel at it. I go out in the country where there's not a lot of bright lights and you can see stars everywhere. It is absolutely overwhelming, astounding, and awesome in every sense. And this vast solar system, it operates with clock-like precision. We set our watches by it. People can predict what will happen a thousand years from now because we know the precision by which this entire universe operates. Now, look at all the complexity of the creatures those that fly through the air, so different from those that walk on the ground, so different from those that swim under the water. All of them with their various forms and colors and intelligences, all of them made out of different matter, but yet. A lot of commonality between them. And then I look at man with his vast intelligence. He can shoot a rocket to the moon, and he can walk on the moon, and he can transplant a heart, and he can cure people of tragic illnesses, and he can build great buildings, and he can do wonderful things, and he can acquire knowledge that's almost beyond our own comprehension today. Now, is this universe a product of nothing, or is this universe a product of a supernatural being and intelligence, one who has power to just speak a world into existence if he wishes to do so? From where did all of this come? Do you believe this just came from nothing, or do you believe it's like the Bible says it was in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, when there was nothing, God created, spoke into existence. The Hebrew word means God created the heavens and the earth. Which takes the most faith to believe? That everything came from nothing, nothing, or that everything came from the hand of this sovereign, all-powerful, eternal being that we call God. In fact, one of the names we have for him is he is the first cause. If you studied theology, they, one, of the, one of the names you would study would be, what is the first cause? And the first cause is God himself. All other effects are because of God. It all ultimately goes back to him because every effect requires a cause, doesn't it? And so I have on my arm a watch. There's pretty good proof somewhere in this universe there's a watchmaker. Right here's a microphone. Pretty good proof there's a microphone maker somewhere. I don't know him. I don't know how he did it. I know one thing that a fortuitous concurrence of atoms didn't one day just accumulate, and here's a Here's a microphone. I know that. I know it didn't happen randomly. Somebody had a plan. Somebody had a blueprint. Somebody had an idea. And they made it, in in fact, into something material. We sit here in a beautiful building, absolute proof that somewhere in this world there's a building maker, a building designer. All this didn't just happen one day. We didn't wish it into existence. We didn't pray it into existence. It would have been a lot easier. But it didn't happen like that. Building is evidence that there is a building maker. Everything that exists has a cause behind it. Well, Paul now stands before Agrippa. Agrippa, why does it seem so incredible that God could raise the dead? After all, he's the same God who created the universe out of nothing and spoke it into existence at Genesis 1-1. And for the skeptics who are growing in our country, or so it seems. Perhaps we even have one here today. My dear friend, here's the nut you can't crack, is you can go all the way back, 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 back. At some point, you have to make a leap of logic and say that everything started from nothing. And no, but if you're a Christian and you believe in God, You believe in the God of the Bible, then the resurrection is not a big hurdle. Is it so difficult to believe that God raised his son from the dead if he had already created the world? That's my first argument. My second argument about this being incredible or, or creditable and believable is that in addition to the eternal God who created the universe, we have a book a holy book. Mine has on the front of it written, Holy Bible. Bible means book, library. A holy book. This book claims God for its author. It's the only book that I know of that has any real credibility that it claims that God wrote the book. But men scoff at that and laugh at that today, And they tell us, no, the Bible was written by a bunch of old men hundreds and thousands of years ago. And what did they know? And how in the world could that help me? But the book claims that God is its author. Now, the thing that gives that claim credibility is that over 25% of this book is prophecy. And prophecy is a description of future events. Over 25% of the book here talks about events that someday are going to occur, or at least when the, when the book was written, these events were in the future. And so what you really have here is a book that tells us what is going to happen before it happens. Now, think with me. There's not a, pl- a person on this planet this morning, not one, who could stand on this platform and address a congregation of people and guarantee that he or she knows what is going to happen tomorrow, 24 hours from now. There's not one person that could absolutely guarantee that they know the future. They can give you some probabilities and so on, but there is not a soul on the planet, I repeat it, that can stand here and tell you they absolutely know what will happen tomorrow. But the one who wrote this book could, and did, and 25% of this, 25 to 30% maybe even of this book, is in fact devoted to that. Let me give you some illustrations. 725 years before Christ was born, a prophet named Micah looked down through history ahead of him over seven centuries. And Micah said, over in Bethlehem of Judea, there will be born the one whose goings forth are from old and from everlasting the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God. He will be born in a little town called Bethlehem, just a little pinpoint rural community on the the map of the Roman Empire. And he will be born there. And of course, you know how that prophecy was fulfilled 725 years later. Christ was born there. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesied, and this was 536 years before Christ was born. Daniel looked down through the tunnel of history, and Daniel said, 400 and some years from the commandment to rebuild the the wall under under Nehemiah, 436 years from that time, then there's going to be born a person, a prince, he called him. And guess what? Jesus Christ came at that exact time. In fact, if you don't believe me on that, how do you think those wise men ended up in Jerusalem and said to Herod, we're looking for a little baby that was born. It's the king of the Jews. Those people had been studying the Old Testament Scriptures in Jeremiah and in Daniel, and they had read those prophecies, and they showed up asking where this newborn baby is, because the one who wrote that Bible knows all about the future, and I could go on and multiply the cases, the details of his birth. I preached on last Sunday from Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus Christ came to the earth, about six or seven hundred years before execution became used as a, pardon me, crucifixion became used as a means of execution. In Ezekiel chapter 36, which was written in 591 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel looks down into the future, and he said, someday the nation of Israel will be carried away. They'll be scattered to all the nations of the earth. But guess what? They're going to come back, and the nation of Israel will be reborn. And in 1948, in May, in my lifetime, the nation of Israel, the Jews, began to come home and the Star of David flag was run up, and today Israel is a nation among the nations of the earth after almost 2,600 years in which it had gone out of existence, and now Israel is back and is a strong, powerful nation over in the Middle East, as you already know. How could that happen? Only God. He's the only one who has that knowledge. In fact, in this book, He said that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. And in Job, Job chapter 19, Job says, I know that one day my Redeemer will live and that he will stand upon the earth. And I know that I will live because after the skin worms have devoured my body, in my flesh I'll come back, I'll be resurrected, and I will see the Lord who I will see for myself. And I'll look in the book of Psalms, number 16 and verse 10, and it says, God will not allow His Holy One to see corruption. What is significant about that verse? Here's what's significant. Jesus Christ was buried. They anointed His body and prepared it, and embalmed it as, as in the Jewish custom. They put Him in that tomb, but the psalmist said He will not see corruption, meaning He will not be in there very long because a body begins to, de- to deteriorate rapidly. And the Lord Jesus Christ was there for three days. And you know what? He came out of that grave exactly as that psalmist had said that the Lord Jesus Christ will not see corruption. His time under the control of death will be very, very short lived indeed. In fact, Jesus Christ prophesied his own death and his own resurrection. In Matthew 16 and 21, he said to the disciples one day, The Son of Man will be raised, the Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And on that day, he'll be cruelly treated. And he described his treatment. And then he'll be killed, was Jesus' words. And then he will rise again from the dead. The only man who ever looked at his followers and said, Look, they're going to kill me. I'm going to be terribly treated, but I'm going to rise again on that day. Now, I don't hear people talk about that, that Christ prophesied his own resurrection. I don't know how a skeptic explains that away, very frankly. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, like Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. And just like that whale expelled Jonah out upon the dry land and he lived again, in the same way, the Son of Man, I will come out of that tomb. I will come out of the earth and I will live again. And two other occasions at least, in Mark 8 and Luke 9, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again from the the grave. And so here's Paul standing before the king. Why should it be such an incredible thing that God could raise his son from the dead? Why is that incredible? After all, this God spoke and the universe was created. He created everything that is out of nothing except by his divine power because nothing else existed. And this God wrote a book that 25 to 30% of it deals with the future, and hundreds of times those prophecies have already been fulfilled to demonstrate his credibility and his reliability. So if that be true, why is the resurrection such a big thing for people to swallow? Then there's the evidence. And as I think about the death and the resurrection of our Savior there are 12 facts that come to my mind that are evidence, evidences that cannot be dismissed. We have this growing uh, atheism in our culture today that's troubling. We have people who claim to be Christians and turn from the faith. We have these books coming out by Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and all these guys, absolutely uh, antithetical to any belief in God, a militant atheism. And yet, when it comes to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are facts that cannot be dismissed. You can't wave your hand and wave away evidence. Here's the evidence. Number one, Jesus Christ died by crucifixion, a public execution in the city of Jerusalem. Number two, He was buried in a private tomb in a garden owned by a rich man. And then a guard was posted. The temple guard came, which would have been between four and 12 trained soldiers. That tomb was sealed. And four big burly guards or 12 big burly guards, we don't know how many, were posted in front of it. Now, how many people are going to attempt to take that body in that set of circumstances, the disciples, number three, were grieving and in despair. In fact, they were depressed and desperate men because the Messiah had been killed and all of their dreams had been shattered. They left everything to follow him, and now he's dead. And so, I understand their, their mourning and their grief. Number four, the body was never found. And that would have been difficult in Jerusalem because one of the things I've observed in Jerusalem is Jerusalem's on top of a mountain, 4,000 feet in the air. And, the, and everything over there is rocky. They don't have deep soil like we have here. You have rock, solid rock, and then four or five inches of dirt on top of it. Digging a grave is, it, it takes time. It's, it's an accomplishment over there because you're digging into rock. It's hard to do. So to, to create a hiding spot would have been difficult. And, and the difficulty would have been even made more difficult because it was the Passover. Three to 400,000 Jews had come from all over the country and flooded that little town. And, and the, the old city of Jerusalem, if you go there, is, oh, maybe twice as big as the downtown area of Florence. It's not a very big area. And so you got three or four or 400,000 people packing in there, plus the usual population, plus a rocky base. Now, what are you going to do with a body? People have asked that. People have written book after book on that. Because that's a piece of evidence. It's difficult to get rid of a human body as 10,000 criminals have found out in our own day. And you add the circumstances to this, the packed city, the crowds of people. What happened to the body if that body had ever been found? Christianity would never have begun. But the body was missing. And number five, the tomb was found empty. On the dawn of the first day of the week, we know that his followers, his disciples, that the women who loved and followed him went there, and they were astonished. There was nobody there. It was absolutely empty. Number six, we know that those disciples had an encounter with someone that they said was Jesus Christ. And it wonderfully transformed them from being in despair and desperate and depressed and down and defeated They come away from that encounter thrilled and celebrating, he is alive, the Lord lives. And it transformed and changed them. Number seven, after seeing this person, they were thoroughly transformed, consumed with trying to convince other people that the Son of God who had died on the cross, that he was in fact still alive. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, about 55 A.D., about 22 years after the resurrection time, the time of Jesus Christ, Paul writes and he says there were an additional 500 eyewitnesses who had seen the Lord during the time of his resu- between the time of his resurrection and the time of his ascension back to heaven. Over 500 eyewitnesses. And those eyewitnesses were still proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ 22 years later. They were never convinced otherwise. Boy, is that not a lawyer's dream? 500 people all saying the same thing. You couldn't lose that case. That's what we have here. And number nine, these events took place in Jerusalem where 3,000 people According to Josephus, the reliable Jewish historian, had written, he said there were over 3,000 people who stood and looked at the crucifixion as it was carried out. These crucifixions were almost like circus events and crowds came and jeered and talked and, 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 and enjoyed the, the, the horrible scene as entertainment. So 3,000 people saw the Lord Jesus Christ as he was being crucified. Number 10, the earliest gospel messages all centered on his death, his burial, and his resurrection. If you'll read the book of Acts, the inspired history of the early church right after the Lord had gone back to heaven, what you will find there is that in every message, the resurrection is emphasized. They never were talking about a Savior who was gone or who had died without also mentioning the Savior who was alive and at the right hand of the throne of God. And then number 11 is his half-brother named James. Now, when you open your Bible and go to the back of it, you read a little book called James. And many people think that's the James who was Peter, James, and John. That was not the same James. Understand that. The the James who was his disciple was killed by Herod in Acts chapter twelve. He he's not around at this point in history when the book of James was written much later on. So it's not the James the Peter James and John that was not the disciple. Who is the James? He's the half brother of Jesus Christ. We find out. His half brother Mary was his mother. Of course, Joseph was James's father and that was not true of the Lord Jesus. But this half-brother, James, was a skeptic. He was a rejecter of the Lord Jesus Christ until the resurrection. And I perfectly understand that what younger brother would say to his big brother, oh, I know you're the Son of God. No, he wouldn't do that, would he? And so he was a skeptic until the end. But then Jesus Christ rose from the grave. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul specifically names James as one of those that the Lord appeared to. And James was converted. He became a believer. He became the greatest leader of prayer in the early church. He prayed so much, his knees were so callous, they called him old camel knees. And James, the Lord's brother, became a believer When he saw the resurrection And he so believed that That like most of them He was stoned to death Outside the temple in Jerusalem He died a martyr's death Because he knew that his Lord was alive And number 12 And lastly there was Saul Saul of Tarshish A great intellect Studied at the feet of Gamaliel Like going to Harvard or Yale today a brilliant man, and he was a member of the council, the ruling body over the city of Jerusalem. He had a political power, and yet one day he tells, I was on the road to Damascus, and Christ appeared to me. And that day, Paul switched allegiance. and Paul became, instead of a hater and persecutor of Christians, Paul became the great saint who wrote half, almost half of your New Testament. Evidence. Evidence you can't wave your hand and dismiss. Evidence you have to do something with, ladies and gentlemen. You either have to believe it or you have to reject it. But neutral, you cannot be. Because Jesus said, if you're not for me, then you are against me. the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One word describes it, supernatural. It can only be explained by the supernatural power of the Creator God who spoke a world into existence. It can only be explained by the supernatural intelligence and wisdom of the God who could write a Bible that foretells Hundreds of events that will come to pass in the future and have come to pass. And that God did not leave himself without a witness, but that God gave us evidence. Twelve facts that I've shared with you this morning to solidify your belief in the resurrection if you are a Christian to give you a reason for the hope that you have within you. And if you're not a believer, my attempt to convince you that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Romans 1 and 4. What will you do with Jesus? I'm sure that most of you here today are believers But I also know that in a group of this many people, there are no doubt a significant number of people who you're not saved. You've never even proclaimed your faith. Brett told about how that he grew up only going to church on Easter and Christmas, and how that he didn't understand the gospel that Christ died for his sins was buried and rose again just for him personally, if for nobody else, and the transforming power that has had in his life. And so this morning, I want to ask you, have you made that choice? Is Jesus Christ your Savior and your Lord? Do you have, does he have first allegiance in your heart? Or are there other gods you worship, the gods of pleasure, the gods of money, the gods of success, or the God of self, who is your Lord today? If you've never been saved, I pray that the Lord would, bring real conviction upon people in this audience today and that a number of people would come to Christ. I'd like for you to bow your head with me right now and I'd like to close our service today with a brief altar call. Thank you
1: for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request and payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504 Be sure to include today's date in the title of today's message and please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple visit our website at www.fbt.org We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person Sunday school starts every week at 9am and the service begins immediately following at 1030 once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.